Before we get to the show, I want to remind all of you that we have an awesome data analytics conference coming up called the Disney Data and Analytics Conference. This conference is taking place August 28th and 29th in Orlando, Florida. Join the Big Data Beard team and get $400 off your pass using our promo code DataBeard-2018 at registration. Enjoy the show. You are now listening to the Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. So anytime you talk big data these days, you're more than likely going to hear terms like machine learning, deep learning, and artificial intelligence brought up. Sadly, it's usually brought up by folks who may or may not really know what the difference is. That's okay. That's the fun of buzzwords today. But I am pleased to have uh, a great guest with us today who's going to help us understand the difference because he frankly knew the difference before they were trending on Google. Our guest today is Wayne Thompson, Chief Data Scientist at SAS. He's he's a 25-year vet at SAS, which is absolutely one of the leading organizations in advanced analytics software. And Wayne, we're super excited to have you join us. Welcome to the Big Data Beard. Uh, Likewise, very excited as well to chat with you and Corey. You, Corey, and Tom. Awesome, man. So the role chief data scientist, I mean, obviously that means like you're the unicorn of the highest order, but tell me a little bit about what it means to be a chief data scientist at SAS. We have a guy named Dr. Goodnight that runs this organization still, but I do have one of the best jobs on the planet. And the real luxury that I have is I get to work with many diverse customers across many industries all across the world. And we're very closely with R&D to help solve problems. And most of those problems are analytical in nature. And I've kind of migrated from being a statistician to when we use the terms data mining, now into data science. And it's all about building data products to solve problems. And that's what we do really well here at SAS. At least I think we do. Very cool. So you came in to the data science world from a statistics background. And we, we clearly, we've talked to a handful of data scientists and they, they have a variety of, of different backgrounds, but how did you end up, you know, moving from a classically trained statistician into being a data scientist at a tech company? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think just like the field itself of analytics, um, I've just evolved with it. You know, I was uh, studying agronomy at the University of Tennessee originally doing grazing trials and fitting things called linear mixed models and, you know, working on that, looking at the climatic and the animal and the soil and the forage continuum and trying to develop these models to predict basically uh, beef production for these animals. But it just evolved. I mean, you know, I went more from, you know, doing planned experimentation to getting a chance to come to SAS because I hadn't seen a lot of the United States or the world for that part. And my first five years were spent here as an instructor. And we got a call from Dr. Goodnight. Several of us here at SAS worked on this. And he, he asked us to build uh, our first data mining product called Enterprise Miner. So, Um, That's when I got into the data mining aspect, more observational data. And at that time, probably the other key competitor was SPSS. Formerly, it was called Clementine. So with your varying background, you're you're talking about, you know, throughout your career, you've seen it kind of changed. What, you know, and having the background now as a, you know, professor and some of the other things, there's so many people that want to get into data science. What would you say? You know, today, if you were kind of encouraging other people, like what would you say the typical background or what would your be your recommendation for how to get into data science for people that are, you know, a little bit just starting out in their career? Well, you know, first, I'm really excited. I think that, you know, I just had, for example, um, a, a master's student working for me as an intern at NC State in the computer science program. And she was also, uh, had a strong focus in data science, meaning she took a lot of machine learning classes. And I think today that these curriculums at the university, at SAS, places online available like Coursera are already designed to where we're really getting good data scientists coming out into the market today. My advice to them, and I often get asked that when someone walks up to me, what do you recommend? You know, I think that first of all, you definitely got to have 
a nice solid background in the analytics and the algorithms. Not necessarily theoretical, but more of the application side. And then I asked them, I said, well, you have to really isolate what are the problems or needs of the customer that you're working with or the organization that you work at. And then you really need to frame that problem and then make sure that you have representative data to help solve that. And then I truly definitely recommend that you build some kind of prototype, not necessarily just the model, but you know, a full end-to-end -end type application to address that problem. And then you get some users for that. And once you get users, the beauty of that is you start getting more data and you start collecting more data, then you can refine that product. And essentially that's how we build killer product here at SAS is through that kind of life cycle of data to prototype to getting more users and then continually improve upon the product. Well, you're, I'll, I'll say this, you're one of the first folks I've heard like actually excited about the, the crop of talent that we've, that we've got coming out of data science candidly. And I, which gives me some hope given your role and, and scope of influence. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful because I, I, I can tell you that a lot of us, you know, have, we've been through some of the Coursera courses. We're all trying to get smarter and, and I, I think when I talk to a lot of enterprises, they're still struggling to find talent. The talent gap seems to be one of the largest inhibitors to progress because the technologies have gotten really good, but the ability for people to apply those technologies in meaningful ways to solve business problems is still very, very challenging. So one of the things you mentioned was this this concept of some technologies that are that have emerged over time. And I read one of your blogs where you talk about kind of the evolution of, you know, is deep learning a, a fad? And and I want to just spend a few minutes kind of understanding your view of the difference between, you know, data science is obviously a practice and it uses tools like machine learning and deep learning to achieve AI. But I want to, what is your view of the key different differences between those technologies? Yeah, that's a, another awesome question. You guys are really uh, hitting the hard spots here. <laughs> I want to go back just to one point. Um, you know, it's not only these young folks that we need to think about and how we're going to help foster, you know, a successful career for them. But I think that there are a lot of people in the workforces like you, myself, we need to be open. We need to not just think about, hey, you know, I do time series analysis and, you know, I'm never going to fit something like a recurrent neural network. It just doesn't make sense to me. We need not to be stodgy. We need to, you know, understand that, Many of these very nonlinear techniques that have a lot of automation built into them can be used and there's great opportunity for us to be successful and make more money. Yep. With regards to deep learning, um, you know, I, in some ways, and this is not entirely true, Corey, in some ways though, I think that that's why we're talking about artificial intelligence again at the level that we are. Everyone's talking about AI. Yep. And, that's because deep learning, you know, I think we've, we've gotten enough data, some of these organizations, everyone's still kind of data poor. We should come back to that perhaps, but um, we've gotten enough data to where these very complex uh, nonlinear progressive learners um, are doing a very good job at classification. And we've also doing things like here at SAS, running our deep learning algorithms on things like NVIDIA Volta series with tensor cores. Mm -hmm. And the applications that I think, you know, first of all, it's like a Swiss army knife. You can, you can build predictive models or classification models with deep learning. So that's just another tool in your tool belt as a data scientist to use with SVMs and gradient boosting and the list goes on and on. But first of all, I'm really excited about computer vision. I mean, you know, back, I think it was with ImageNet, there's probably about 14 million of these labeled images. And it's a competition that you've probably heard of. And oh, the, uh, the MNIST library. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, I think uh, in 2011, the best that they could get was like a 25% classification rate. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then along came deep learning. And, you know, the next year, in 2012, and that dropped to like 16%. And I think a team from China last year was right at about 1%. So the ability for these algorithms, which, you know, they're subcomponent modelers, they can take these images and, you know, um, 
really much like you put together a puzzle, you know, think about all the edges and it's going to find that and, and help you assemble that back into a representation. And they're just super accurate. So object detection, image classification, et cetera, are really key. The other area, of course, too, is, and those are convolutional networks. The other area that's super hot right now, of course, are recurrent neural networks. Yep. And, you know, first of all, I work with text mining. I was amazed at just how counting of terms could be, you know, so successful with something like a singular value decomposition or a bag of words approach. But now these recurrent networks, which are very good at sequence analysis, where essentially, as you and I are talking, it's essentially a sequence of terms. They're very good at things like speech to text and sentiment analysis. Mm -hmm. And these same things we're using here at SAS on our solar farm are killer at forecasting as well. So they do a good job there. Those two things, I think, uh, are from a deep learning perspective, have just set everything else on fire. I'm finding that most of our customers are still using something like a extreme gradient boosting for your typical supervised learning problems though. Which is then you have to deal with, uh, I think you'd coin the term the data arborists when you go to gradient boosted trees. Is that uh, right? Yeah, I guess that's some of the, that's right. I, I you know, I sometimes call it the Dos Equis man, you know, just don't build one model. You build thousands of models and you ensemble them. And, and that's cool. Um, and the thing about that too is, um, I like another algorithm called rule fit right now. People don't talk about it enough, but it's where you fit many different decision trees and then you use the rules from that, which again, you know, each path to a terminal node and a leaf is nothing more than an if then else type rule. And then you can feed those into something like a lasso or lasso regression, depending on who you talk to in terms of pronunciation. And you can get model interpretability for those. And I plan on using some of those for this fraud detection bot that we're building. Very so there's cool. new algorithms and things coming all the time. So one thing you mentioned that I, I, I've heard this term thrown out there, but, and, and you sort of talked about it, which is there was this big talk, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago around artificial intelligence. And it was very in vogue and, and it was talked about a lot and there was some some interesting work being done obviously like things like you know back propagation helped form people's excitement around it more but we went through what's referred to as an ai winter right where people kind of stopped talking about it because they had all these algorithms that they had these thoughts on but they didn't have the the data or the computational capability to handle it do you think we're really out of the, the the AI winter? Are we like in? Are we properly in AI spring, or have we moved on to full on summer? Well, I think we've got a lot of road ahead of us. Um, there's just way more opportunity and things to solve than what we've already solved. Uh, right now, I think that you know a lot of times AI really resolves back to machine learning and specifically supervised learning. And you can take any algorithm that you like, and if you've got a label like fraud or not fraud, or purchase propensity or not purchased, or churn or not churned, you can let that thing grind away at that label. And eventually, through seeing that observation many times and others like it, it's going to get the answer right. But some areas like you know, semi-supervised learning where we don't have enough labels, especially in healthcare, or things like reinforcement learning to really develop good policies to help us make decisions with rewards. You know, this is where the action is going to be at going forward. And truly unsupervised learning, I think, is going to be the key. So with regards to unsupervised learning, you know, we're still in a deep thought. The other aspect for supervised, I think that we've really addressed that well, and that's pretty much, you know, in a lot of cases, what I see today is AI. And we need to do more in supervised learning because that's the way you and I learn. That's the way probably your daughter or your son learns is, is not only through you and things that you taught them, but also through observing things and, you know, taking in that information and then being able to to develop patterns and understanding from that data to help make decisions and truly understand something. 
So Wayne, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Where do you think we are from a timeline? You said that, you know, for unsupervised learning, we're still at, at, you know, at the early stages of it. When, when will we really start to see advances? I mean, and this, you know, maybe this is what's going to take us to Mars too, right? You know, and (laughs) our automated machines and exploring out the, the solar system. Um, it, that's that's a, another good question, and you know what? Um, I just think that there are too many people throwing answers out there where we're we're really not sure. Uh, I hate to kind of step back and give you that kind of answer, but I think within the next no, no, minute, no, totally fine. I, I, I actually I actually <laughs> like that answer better because yeah. then it actually makes me think that you've thought about it and you're like, yeah. dang, this is a really big problem, and like, oh. or it's a really complex thing. Then to anybody that claims to know the answer, it's like, eh, are you sure? Like, can you? Uh, these adversarial networks, I think Lacan talks about these. He's out of Toronto and, you know, like Ming and the rest of them. And these are, these are the leaders in the field. And they talk about these adversarial networks and where you can kind of feed in information along with the data that you've already collected and try to augment that data space and look for manifolds and so forth to isolate signal. But the problem I see is too many people are using these adversarial networks and they're forgetting to compare the data that was fed in with other data that was fed in. They're just looking at what they have versus the data that's kind of piped in at random. And so we have to be careful with those, but that's a good start. I mean, you know, um, I, I often talk about, you know, sure, like I said, we can tell that this is a table I'm sitting at. And if I feed that into a backpropagation algorithm, it can see this table hundreds of times and it can tell you, yes, Corey, this is a table. But it doesn't understand that that's some place where your child can hide under or if it stood on it, it can fall off and get hurt. And these are the things that you have to really be able to simulate the environment. And that's the future for unsupervised learning. We're at least 10 years from making good progress there. Fair enough. So when I've, when I've read your, some of your, uh, you know, your blogs and, and seen you talk at some of the conferences, I've, you've mentioned this term, a connectionist, or the idea of connectionism and a, and a rise uh, in that concept based on deep learning. Can you explain that for me? I, don't, I didn't fully understand what that um, meant. Well, uh, there's been some uh, folks that have written books around the five tribes of machine learning, and connectionism is one of the tribes. Okay. I won't go through all of them here due to time. Yep. But, you know, these people believed, you know, much like the brain and connections between our nervous system, that these artificial neural networks, you know, could be connected in such a way that they could derive, you know, based upon a set of features, the right output or signal. And as I mentioned, um, I think back in the 50s, if it, I, I believe it was Rosenblatt that really started the first modern perceptron, but they couldn't solve the exclusive if-or problem. And then as you mentioned, backpropagation came in and they could do more nonlinear work, but the problem was they didn't have enough damn data. <laughs> you, know? you know, I'm fitting for size sports. I'm doing, you know, with with size sports, they're, they're the heroes. I'm just helping persist, work with them as a development partner. We're developing these YOLO models. You only look once. They're hotshot object detection models. And they have like 45 million parameters in them. I believe even tiny YOLO has about that many. And to be able to develop those models, first you have to have lots of data that's representative. And the other issue too is these models are so big you have to be able to deploy them very quickly. And we've kind of figured that out by being able to put these models directly into devices like a Bassler camera in their case, which they put 14 of these cameras around the pitch of the football field. And about, I think, 50, even 100 frames per second, they're constantly shooting not only the player that has the ball, but everyone else. And they're not putting any devices or sensors on the players. And being able to track how these players are doing, that generates a lot of data for them. And then from that data, they can rank these players and help facilitate coaching. And these guys are making a lot of bucks too. So you want to find the next kind of all-star on the cheap. And their application is actually called Moneyball, which you're probably familiar, excuse me, it's called Ball James, which is named after Bill James from from the Oakland A's that kind of, Develop the uh, whole money wall thing. 
That's so awesome. connectionist, um, I think that's one form. I'm still more of a Bayesian guy too. You know, I still like logistic regression. Yep. The Bayesian tribe are, are statisticians. But, you know, like I said, let's not be stodgy. Let's blend all this stuff together to get the best answer. There you go. So it's I've heard you say this a couple of times. You got to have data, right? And any of these these you know, deep learning capabilities, any chance to, to get towards this idea of AI requires a lot of data. But what does a company do if they're data poor? Like if, if an organization is looking to try to improve their ability to be more data driven, but they don't have these massive representative data sets that are, can be used effectively. What do you think? How do they start? Like, where do they what do they do next if they don't have large scale data sets? Yeah, um, that that's a very, very good question. And uh, first of all, I feel like um, it's not APIs that are eating our world. It's not the algorithms. Today, everything is about the data. And who has the most data is going to win. And hopefully all of us as a society can participate in this data, data, data ownership and, and all of us benefit in the long run. But typically, you know, like Aristotle, I've mentioned this in the past, I actually developed a little prototype for doing suggestive BI, and I named it Aristotle internally here at SAS. And he learned through empiricism, and that is by studying things through observation. So you need to, you know, if you're working with customers, you have clients, or you're selling some kind of manufacturing product, or you're making that product, you need to collect the transactional data. Transactional data, first of all, is the most valuable because it really, at a granular level, tells you what's going on in that process. And, and you might even need to do some statistics. You might even need to do some experimental design. That's part of the big difference between machine learning and statistics is you develop an experiment to collect data. And you do it at a very randomized way until you can generate good estimates and you're just as concerned about the variance as you are the point estimate. But you collect this transactional data and then also what your customer says. You know, there's plenty of textual data out there. No customer out here is textual data poor. It's very easy to bring in that data and create a term by document matrix of term frequency and then apply something like a recurrent neural network to classify groups of people based upon survey information and so forth. So there's lots of textual data out there. And the other thing I like to do, I kind of say go fusion, if you would, with your data, much like a cooking show. Um, you need to take and do market basket analysis on all of your different products that you have and combinations across your customers and then make rules out of those and then transpose those rules into binary indicators and merge those back in with the transactional data, back in with the text data. Now you're starting to get like a machine learning person. You've got this big old fat record for that customer ID with all this information in it. And some of the customers I work with now are so dang on good at this, Thomas, Corey, that they actually are starting to put economic value a monetary value to certain attributes that they collect yeah that's that's why we've started seeing the data monetization trend right and i i like the uh like we've talked with bill schmarzo one time he's a you know the dean of big data he talks about the data through use is the number one sort of value creation with data and so once you create this idea of a a use of a usable or monetary uh, benefit from using the data, then obviously it becomes an asset like a manufacturing facility because you've created some, it's a value creation engine. So it's kind of interesting. I love that. So I want to, want to pick your brain a little bit because we've talked about kind of AI and deep learning where it's going, uh, where it's come from, where it's going to go in the future and how to get started. I love those advisements on, you know, start looking at the data you have, focus on transactional records and go fusion. Love that. But what is SAS's position today on artificial intelligence from a company perspective? What's really SAS focused on in, in terms of trying to help customers solve problems? Yeah. Um, really what we're trying to do is um, first, we're not trying to build, let's say, SAS artificial intelligence and something like a SKU number that you can just buy. What we want to do is we want to make sure that artificial intelligence is embedded, fully integrated, you know, almost part of the bloodline of 
every product and every solution that we have here at SAS. For example, Corey, what happens when you open up an Excel spreadsheet? What do you see? I see a bunch of rows and columns that I'm really sad to have to interact with. Yeah, and and you might have defined a formula, so you might right. see that. And yeah. you no, know, um, but I think the machine can do a lot more. So in our business intelligence software, Visual Analytics, um, we're actually doing things like summarizing the data as soon as you touch it. You can just drag and drop your data onto the desktop and it will look at trends of the data. It will help you perhaps even give you a quality score for the data. And then we're also doing things like, you know, you and I may, you know, we're in the same field. You know a lot about data science. I looked at you and, and you've got a very technical background, do a lot of great work. Um, you and I may look at the same data and if I'm following you, much like in a movie, we might use something like a recommendation system mm -hmm. to, you know, say, hey, well, you know, Corey looked at the data this way, Wayne. You might also want to look at that and use a recommendation engine to help kind of move you through that data because everyone should be able to use analytics. And I feel like we're also doing that with voice commands. You've talked to some of my guys about bots already in a previous discussion out at uh, out at the uh, Spark Summit. Yeah. But, you know, our, our goal there, too, is with, with the AI is, you know, we don't want to just do summarization, descriptive information, but, you know, I want to be able to ask something like Alexa or an app that I developed for a bot, you know, what's the next best stock that I might want to buy? You know, who's likely to churn? You know, this person on the phone, what's the likelihood of them churning right now? Can I get a score back for that? We really want to drive a lot of analytics. And then in our solutions, and that's underestimated, by the way, at SAS, we have a boatload of solutions. And we're really, really good at fraud detection. We're really good at customer intelligence. You know, we're putting things like natural language generation because everyone wants to tell stories and tell stories about their data. So all of our products will have the ability to reason on input, as I've described, mm -hmm. right? Just don't show me rows and numbers. Tell me something, please, machine. You're not that stupid. And then, you know, once it does some number crunching and you ask it a few more questions to help focus the problem, I wanted to tell a story on the back end. So is this is this applying and giving you're talking about, you know, so many people use Excel, right? And you, you, you have rows and columns, but are we talking about now just giving the ability to the people that are, you know, maybe the data analysts, they're not so much the data scientists, having them be able to consume data like a data scientist and kind of enabling them. So instead of, you know, in your organization, you have a data team that's kind of responsible for that. You've actually kind of pushed it out where, you know, with assisting in AI, it's, it's helping them make better decisions. Absolutely. And, you know, um, you know, we've heard the citizen data scientists, you know, I work with Gartner and helping coin that. Um, but more and more people are doing analytics. I don't want to prevent that. And getting the data in these systems is what's really key, because not only do I want you to look at maybe a report and have it tell you something, but I want that data. If you like that data, much like you do something on Facebook or or on Twitter, if you like it, you know, then people see how many stars that data has and how valuable it is. And I think that this repository of information and being able to use the machine to glean insights from it really is driven from just collecting a lot of data and then building up that data repository. And then you become very rich. So I've, I've talked with a lot of, a lot of big enterprises and, and many of them who are earlier, or I should say, they haven't quite gone down the path of building a real powerful data science center of excellence. They don't have that embedded in their business strategy, but they, they ask the question of how do I, what's the best way for me to start to adopt some of these AI capabilities in the near term? And a lot of times my answer to them is, is to partner with, uh, analytical software providers who are embedding those machine learning and deep learning capabilities out of the box in their platforms. Is that, is that a, is that an accurate statement of, I've been telling people the truth that that's probably the fastest way rather than like go out and hire a bunch of, you know, PhD data scientists and develop your own AI platform on the side. Is that, is that the fastest path to adopting AI in the enterprise? 
Yeah, I think that that's one path. You know, we have a service here at SAS called Results as a Service, where we actually will, you know, host your information. Obviously, there's a lot of confidentiality, a lot of security built into that service. But, you know, we've got several, we've got thousands of these quants over there that can really take an initial pass at your data and then build some of these summary reports like I talked about and and feed those back to you. But I also recommend, you know, like in the past, I think it was about 10 years ago, we developed a credit scorecard solution. And I just was realizing how much these consultants were charging these customers to build these scorecards for them. Where these credit scorecards, you get some attributes and they're called attributes and characteristics are what the variables are called. Attributes are the actual bin values. And you feed that into a logistic regression model and you compute something like weights of evidence and then, you know, out comes the, uh, the estimates from the logistic regression and then you scale those into a scorecard. That's not hard to do. You could get one guy, one really good seasoned data scientist, she could do that for you right away, save you a lot of money. So I think too that invest a little bit, start with a small problem, get that data scientist working on that problem, show some benefit. For heaven's sakes, do supervised learning first so that you can quantifiably show that, hey, we're saving a lot of money here for you, and then grow it. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it, it makes total sense. No, it's good. I. You know, people are always looking for the easy button. So you want to be able to give them like, well, just go buy, just go buy something off the shelf. It's easier. So big companies like SaaS, obviously, you're you're looking to embed those capabilities into products that maybe people already use to improve them. So that's that's good to hear. I I'm curious. You know, one of the things we talk about from time to time, and you and you brought this up when you talked about your uh, this results as a service offering, where you know, there's this as data gets bigger, there's this this confidentiality thing, this protection thing. Like how, like what are, what's, what's going to happen when this data gets as, as big as we're talking about and companies create it so well, are, are there things that, that SAS is doing today to not only, you know, kind of protect the data, but also protect things like the models? Cause I saw for the first time people trying to mess with, uh, at that spark and AI summit, there was a whole talk on people that were trying to like hack basically by giving the, the computer vision bad data or slightly modified data to get it to give the wrong output, which was like things like go through a stop sign when it should have stopped. Is there things that, that, that SAS is building in terms of like products or services to help organizations maintain the efficacy of the models? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, I coined the term analytics lifecycle. I'm not sure that I did that entirely independent. Someone, I, I came up with that term independently, but someone else may have also derived it outside of myself. And through that whole analytical life cycle terminology, I thought when I came to SAS, I was going to be building all of these killer machine learning algorithms and focusing on just algorithms, algorithms, feature engineering, and so forth. And I came to be amazed that really most of my time was spent putting models to work, actually deploying models into production to make decisions. And so we started to develop something called Model Manager, and a lot of the banks drove it. CIBC was a development partner for me, Bank of Montreal, and believe it or not, another customer, Swisscom helped us as well. And we use these development partners. And they basically wanted to manage these models just like other assets in their organization and understand where those models are at all times in their life cycle and the integrity of those models as well. Lineage of the models, trace back to the underlying features. And um, things people are going to do bad stuff out there. You know, there's no doubt about that. And I'm concerned about that with things like transfer learning, you know, and, and deep learning now. You know, if I was to build an autonomous car, I would probably call up someone like Tesla or, you know, Uber and say, hey, you know, uh, have you published your model? Can I have those preliminary weights so that I can do some work on myself? They may or may not give it to you, but I think there's going to be a lot of sharing of these models. You bring up a very viable concern. I think you need a good inventory of them. You need a good metadata layer around them and you need the data scientist that has developed the model you need to be monitoring these models for degradation and working with it 
And that's what we do around model manager. And last, Corey, uh, I'm getting a little long-winded. I'm sorry. No, but you're good. You're answering never, the question well. You're good. <laughs> it's, it's never just a model. You know, what is a model? What is an analytical model? And I don't want to confuse that with a data model. First of all, it's gobs of data prep. Just mountains and mountains of, you know, data wrangling. And you, first of all, as a data scientist, have to create that blueprint so that it can be replicated for scoring, inferencing in the future. And then these models are layered with rules before and after the model formula. And so we've developed this whole decision management framework to um, really manage not only the data, but the rules and the models collectively. So have you, this is just a side note question. Have you had any experiences where if somebody doesn't, doesn't do a good job of managing their, uh, their model development and the, the retraining of their models, have you seen any experiences or read anything interesting where, AI goes rogue or AI goes wrong? Um, yeah, I think that first of all, it's embarrassing. Most A lot of these organizations still are rebuilding these models on like an annual cycle. Mm -hmm. And like I said, some organizations may spend three months, you know, getting that data scientist in to build that credit scorecard that we talked about, yet it never got deployed. And that's because, you know, they haven't had good data management practices and they haven't partnered with IT and operations, you know, it's, it's kind of like analytics is no part, no longer down in the basement. It's not part of just research. It's truly operational. Yeah. And, and so that's key. But I think the future is to hell with scoring. You know, I don't want to build a model offline and then, you know, apply that model and then measure outcomes analysis like model stability or, the population stability index or how well the features themselves are being kind of uniform across that scoring process. The future, I think, in the, is really putting the analytics at the edge into streaming devices. And at SAS, we have really killed it there. We have not only done, you know, if I go to Strata, I'll see a typical example to where somebody's doing some time series analysis of stocks. Okay, that's cool. You know, you can sessionize and decompose and create a stock ticker, for example, for Amazon. Right. But we're doing a lot more complicated things. We talked about this object detection. We've also doing a lot of work with our text analytics. We compute sentiment or we can do document classification on the fly. And the beauty of being able to put those models at the edge as the data is coming in, is you're constantly updating, you're constantly monitoring versus an offline checking online type scenario. We see the the edge moving things to the edge is critical, and I and I like that. The challenge that we've seen in many cases is that you you have this what you kind of describe, which is this waterfall process of models being developed. Uh, over you know then renewed over a year and they're not you know they're not being effectively like updated on a regular basis to where then if that happens at the edge then now you're just just you're distributing what is already a problem <laughs> which is which is a challenge so one thing you mentioned I, that i wanted to to pull this thread a little bit is you mentioned how important it is for data science teams to partner with IT. And I know you manage a group of data scientists, obviously working as a product in some product development capabilities, also in solution development. But why do you think it's so important for data scientists to partner with IT? And what does that, like, that partnership look like for success? Well, um, you know, I think first of all, it's, I don't want to use this, don't, don't think of this as a bad kind of representation, uh, cowboys and Indians, because the data scientists were, you know, were always out there running these big jobs and were grabbing detailed data from Hadoop and from Teradata and from some flat file system. And we're just, in the past, we're seen as kind of rogues. And, you know, and in a lot of ways too, um, that's also what has been really important about SAS Progressive progressing because we have become a much more operational type set of technologies and solutions. And really what it, what it allows is, is to do harvesting. You know, I'm going back to my 
farming background, when I grew up on a farm in West Virginia, um, if you can regularize your model development process and you can get these attributes like I had, like I talked about, where someone like HSBC will create this master analytical table, not only for marketing, but for risk. And these guys are all using this information. You can really crank out and build lots of models and get them into production really quickly. And so it kind of greases the wheel. The mistake I find, Corey, is if you become too locked down with IT in that process, you know, you kind of got handcuffs on, if you would. It doesn't allow sometimes for the pioneering to continue. You still need to let the data scientists do a little bit of that rogue, bursty type activity to find new attributes. And if those are deemed useful, then write them back into that master table. Do you ever find an application where, so it sounds like you're saying, you know, you fail fast. So you, you, you go through and you'll create an application or something like that, or some kind of model, the model fails, but the data that you gener generate or pull from the model actually moves into another product or another model that gives you better value. Um, I've seen that. One of the biggest problems I find is, um, you know, too often we develop models that just aren't representative of the future. And that's called concept drift. You know, who did all the experts predict we're going to win the World Cup? Germany. Yep. And they were, they were, they were, they were the champion before, and they were out. And, and they dominated many of these categories. I think they beat Brazil. It was, like, ridiculous. I felt so bad for them. I, I, I won't, don't know the exact score. Please post the right one. But it was something like 7-1. to one. So this whole thing about stochastic, you know, um, concept drift, things are constantly changing. There's a huge temporal effect to all of this. That's how the Netflix model really took into account. What movies are you watching now or have you watched over the last few days or last couple weeks is way more important than what you watched a year or two years ago. Not de-emphasizing that that's still not part of the data continuity. And by being able to push this stuff into the edge again, I think that that's very important. People are also not doing enough survival analysis. Survival analysis doesn't predict if something's going to happen. It predicts when it will happen. And they've been used in engineering with plant failures and in healthcare for outcomes analysis for many years. And I think we need to be using more survival analysis. Yeah. The other thing too, the last is, like I said, I have used this textual data and if customers are unhappy or so forth, that's in that data. And so if their temperament changes or their mood or so forth, just collecting that textual data in as a way kind of a proxy for the time series data and works very, very well. But good question, Thomas. I kind of jumped around it, but I wanted to get those concepts in. Yeah, for sure. And that's, it's actually funny. We're, we're reading this book, a group of us called everybody lies. And one of the things it talks about the power of big data. Have you read that book yet? No, I'm sorry. I haven't. It's, it's actually quite good. It's an interesting, it's an interesting sociological study in data science and in terms of sources of useful data. So interesting story, but uh, it talks about the ability for big data to allow us to zoom in on things that are really interesting to solve business problems. So it's, it, you validated that very well. So Wayne, I wanted to say thank you, one, for spending some time with us, sharing your your views on on AI, machine learning, and deep learning. And clearly, SaaS is, is doing some great work to solve interesting customer challenges for large organizations around the world and small. Um, and what we want to do now is we'd like to get to know you a little bit more personally. You all should definitely check out Strata Data Conference happening September 11th through 13th in New York City. At this conference, you'll learn how data is driving innovation and transforming businesses. You'll hear from top minds in technology and leading companies like Airbnb, Google, WeWork, and Uber as they discuss the latest developments in machine learning, data engineering, real-time applications, data governance strategy, and much more. You'll also network with thousands at the largest gathering of technologists and business leaders working with data. Save 20% with our passcode, PCBeard, at checkout. a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal in a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. 
Rapid fire. Rapid fire. Let's do this. All right. So first question for rapid fire is, what year will Skynet go online? You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Come on, you you you're an AI That's guy. <laughs> Why? Because it's already online. Is that what you mean? Well, that's what I think. <laughs> yeah, we've heard that a lot. There's a lot of votes for it. It's probably already online. Uh, if you could recommend a book to us, what would it be? You know, I, I'm kind of boring in some regards. I do have one good book, but I've been reading like IEEE data science articles. So doing peer review for these articles for this upcoming conference. But, you know, I read this book called Younger Next Year. And it's by this guy, I think his name is Chris Crowley and some MD. It's either like Henry or Harry Lodge. And, you know, I thought about this because I'm 58 now. And if you look at kind of this health curve, you know, by the time people get into their 50s, there's like this, and, and on the y-axis is how healthy you are, how fit you are, just, you know, how how overall holistically are you doing? And we all kind of sail along and then we hit 50 and you see this thing just drop like a rock, your life expectancy. And, and these guys, it's an older book. I think the version I got, you know, they had like this old pulsar heart rate monitor where you get like 10 bucks off of one if you bought it. But, um, you know, it, it really says, hey, even in our 80s, even our 70s, 80s, we can still be very fit and very active, much like we were in our 40s and 30s. So check it out. Younger You Next Year. Got some really great tips in it. I like it. Very cool. So what genre of music are you currently listening to? Bam. That's a tough one. Well, I grew up on Southern Rock. You know, Ronnie Van Zandt is my dude. I really think he was great. You know he never wrote down a lyric. Never wrote down a single lyric, all in his head. And then I migrated to something, you know, the Stones, and I was a big Bad Company fan. But to be honest, I just saw the Arctic Monkeys last week, two weeks ago. Nice. And I like them. They have that Sheffield kind of English sound. And believe it or not, I like Weezer. I've got tickets to go see Weezer. And uh, I wasn't into them in the past, and... I'm kind of I'm gravitating into this whole different style of music. I won't call it indie rock, but and and they just redid a song by Toto Africa, which is is actually pretty good. Huh. So there you go, Weezer, I like Weezer, it. and Arctic Monkeys. Dig it. So what? Piece... Oh, by the way, I gotta say this: Red Hot Chili Peppers rule. Oh, there you there go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let that one slide. That's okay. What piece of technology is currently making your life worse? Egg technology um how about microsoft outlook <laughs> email is yeah. a burning trash fire i am not a fan mostly the calendar too and i live and die by those reminders yep because i think we have too many meetings Corey. oh i think that you know preach sass we're we're as bad as anyone about that you know and and People ought to be coding. People ought to be out selling. People ought to be, you know, there's just too many meetings, and I hate Outlook. For them. I got you. I like it. I, I agree. What is your pers your biggest personal money pit right now? Oh, my biggest per You're going to like this one. So I have some classic cars, but I have one right now. I have a 1964 F100. Ooh. That and is a good F100. I'm doing a Crown Vic swap. I'm paying to have that done. Oh, yeah, doing the uh, the independent front suspension swap in the front? The whole thing. I'm taking the entire cab and the bed and setting everything on top of the Crown Vic. I'll have these big old massive brakes. I'll have this, you know, oil cooler. These cars were designed to run about 16 hours a day. So I call it the Crown Hick. Some people call it a crux. I'm spending way too much money on it. Oh, that is awesome. I've never heard of somebody. I've heard somebody doing just the suspension swap on the older Ford trucks, but I've never heard of somebody actually doing a full on. Up, you know, maybe I'll send you a photo. and. Oh, yeah, please do. We'll put that in there. Put that on there with the, with the blog. and It's pretty nice. Um, and, you know, he's the guy is making the dash until the 
you know, um, all the instrumentation from the Crown Vic is there. That's awesome. Speedometer, all that, it's all lined up. And um, I can't wait to get it back. I also have a 1949 Chevy 3100. That's a truck, and I got a 66 Mustang. So I like old shit, too, you know. I'm, I'm kind of a hot rodder, yeah. but um, it kind of gets me away from this other state that I do uh-huh. 10 hours a day here at SAS. Yep. No, you got some, that's some good cars. That 66 Mustang is, uh, I'm still trying to track down my grandfather's 65 that he sold, uh, many years ago. I'm still trying to track it down cause I'd love to have that car back. So question, are you going anywhere, uh, really interesting soon? Well, um, I, I just got very fortunate to go to Brovnik with Dr. Goodnight and the rest of the team to do a briefing for the analysts. And that was pretty cool. Croatia is very nice. That's what I've heard. That's on my list of places I want to go in Europe. A second kind of follow-up question to that. You you mentioned that you're doing some prep work for conferences. I'm curious, what what conferences are you going to be attending here in the near future? Um, This IEEE Data Science Conference is in Tehran. Is that correct? Italy in October. Okay. And then we also have our own analytics experience conference uh, in San Diego in October as well. Um, there's also the knowledge and discovery and data mining, and we have a lot of people going over to that. Do you? Uh, I, I saw that SAS is sponsoring the uh, the Disney Data Analytics Conference. Do oh. you ever go to that one? No, but um, I would like to get on the docket. So if you can help me out with that, let me know. I can actually. We we are a uh, we're a press partner oh. for for that really? conference. Yeah, it's it, it's one that we've just it's our first relationship and kind of start talking with them, but they're we've got a code where you can actually get $400 off your pass. Uh, and we're actually going to be, we're actually going to be recording podcast episodes with some of the presenters, uh, there at the show. Actually, we've got a Great little private recording area. It's gonna be pretty cool. So question, last question, uh, what TV show or, you know, internet, Netflix, Amazon prime show are you uh, currently binging on right now? Um, have you heard of, um, yeah, I guess that would be cool. You heard of the Peaky Blinders? I have. Yes. I've, not, I've not watched it. Is it good? Ah, uh, and it's good. Is it okay? It's, it's right after the war, World War One, I, I think, and it's in Birmingham, England. And they got these guys that are pretty tough ruffians, and it's a little gangster story with you know Winston Churchill and the Russians mixed in. It's a must watch. I like cool. it. All right, well, that's a great recommendation. Well, Dr. Wayne Thompson, we are so uh, so appreciative of your time. It was a great conversation. I think everybody learned a ton. We look forward well, to seeing you at some of these conferences, and hopefully you'll uh, you'll come back and join the Big Data Beard team again soon. Hey, that'd be awesome. Thank you both as well. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast. 